In this episode of First Mark's Driven Podcast, we welcome Peter Fenton, a general partner at Benchmark, who is frequently mentioned among the top venture investors in the world. In a fireside chat with First Mark Managing Director Matt Turk, Fenton shared the qualities he looks for in entrepreneurs, as well as his take on the current funding environment for startups. Uh, West Coast firm, uh, you are uh, number two investors um, in part, they say, because of your very early in, uh, investment in Twitter, uh, where you invested when the company was only uh, 25 people strong. And just this week, uh, the New York Times, in collaboration with our friends uh, at CB Insights, so the CEO of CB Insights spoke actually at an earlier event, uh, released their own list of the best venture capitalists in the world, and guess who was number one? Uh, yourself, so congratulations on Apparently a bug in that model. So. Yes. <laughs> it's very data-driven. Yeah, different list they're coming up with, which is not what you want to be on. <laughs> um, in addition to all of this, um, uh, so in addition uh, to being a, a, a master of um, investments, you also seem to be a master of time. Uh, because... Um, so first of all, on the same day, you had, uh, I, I read, two companies that got acquired a few years ago. So it was Spring Source by VMware yeah. and uh, FriendFeed by Facebook, so the same day. And uh, as if that was not enough, on the same day in uh, December of 2014, you had two companies, two of your investments go public the same day. So it was Hortonworks and, and New Relic. Um, so, I, yes, <laughs> I, I, I would be bragging so much more than you are. Right. Um, so, thanks very much for being here. So, uh, in, actually, in particular, because as I was prepping um, for this a little bit, I actually realized that you don't do this uh, that often, that you don't speak uh, publicly that often or do interviews that often. So, I'm, uh, you know, we're uh, very grateful that uh, you'd be willing to spend a little bit of time um, time with us. So, this is a data event, of course, we're going to talk a lot about your investment thoughts and strategy in the data world, but I um, want to start maybe at a high level and, you know, particularly in light of uh, your, your incredible track record about, you know, how you invest. I mean, there's a bunch of entrepreneurs yeah. here and the number one question is always, well, how do you, how do you pick? I mean, is it the people, is it the idea? If that's the people, yeah. then how? Um, yeah, you know, I, uh, I've been doing this job for almost enough time that I can't do it anymore in the sense that, you know, there's a, one of my former partners at Excel said, when you see the problems and you're not naive anymore to the opportunities and you don't start with the question of what could go right. And if you do, I, yes, I said almost 20 years, you start to see a lot of things that could go wrong. Um, and, and the instincts that I taught, was taught early on, I, I still worship at today, which is that I, I look first and foremost for the same thing that a founder looks for when they start a company, which is that, that moment where you start to dream about this possible world or this possible product or experience, and it, it terrorizes you. You can't sleep at night. You, uh, it brings, it elevates your, your, your energy levels, your blood pressure, everything. And, you know, that, emotion requires a high degree of naivete, which is something that's really essential in our business. And I find that there's a little more naivete on the West Coast than there is on the East Coast, but <laughs> that's changing. You know, MongoDB was, was a company, my partner, who's now retired, who sees more problems than opportunities. And I, I say that in jest. Uh, there was always a hundred reasons why a company wasn't going to work. Um, so, so what I look for is that first and foremost, that sort of feeling of, of uh, deep attraction. And I had this conversation with, with, with Paul Graham. And uh, I'm mindful this is all on the record, but uh, you know, P Paul and I were uh, meeting with a friend of mine from uh, from Europe, uh, Xavier. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, bless you. <laughs> uh, 
and, 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 and Xavier asked the question of like, what do you look for? Like, because you're, you're interviewing a lot of people. And Paul said, yeah, you know, we can interview 40 people a day. And, you know, the interviews are 10 minutes long, which is about seven minutes too long. <laughs> I said, well, what do you look for? And because what I was struck with with Y Combinator is what they're selecting for has a pretty high hit rate for what I end up wanting to invest in. And, and yet it's not the idea because those ideas are so plastic at that point. And he said there are two personal attributes or two attributes he looks for. Um, the fr and I think they're both matters of character. Um, so the first thing is just, is this entrepreneur deeply authentic? And, and in our world, we're subjected to, as are you, a high degree of promotion. Uh, and it's funny because we all do it. And, and you'll do this when you're closing a candidate. You'll do it when you're representing some numbers where you don't necessarily have deep convictions. You go to this place where you start to uh, spin, you know? And, and one of the things you develop an immune system for is, is, is that. And the authenticity that I remember vividly when Mark Zuckerberg presented the Series A investment for Facebook, I, like, it's like a mental tape recorder was going. And I remember every, everything about that. Of course, Sean Parker did most of the talking. Um, and there's, I think, they say he was wearing pajamas. He, yeah, I don't think he was wearing his pajamas. He might have fallen asleep in the meeting. Um, but but so, so, so the first attribute is authenticity, just, just sort of reckless abandon and passion in a way that's, that's, that's genuine. Uh, I saw this in Solomon at Docker, you know, and, and turns out, by the way, his idea was catastrophically bad. Uh, dot cloud, which we don't talk about. Uh, and, but the authenticity, the passion he had to say developers need to program the internet. They're just they're not being given the tools for mass innovation. It, it was not that... He had, a, he had a more authentic term than I just used. But, um, and then the second thing he looks for, which again, I think I, I really share, is uh, he used the term fearsome, um, meaning you should feel a little uneasy. Because if you're in that meeting and, and the entrepreneur makes you feel safe and calm and, and, and uh, you know, kind of uh, very much in the linear mindset, uh, they're not likely to you know, profoundly change the world. And yeah, it's so cliche to say that, but um, that fearsomeness uh, and that, that, that um, sense that this person, oh my God, you know, I'll never be able to control this. And, and it's, it's humbling because you quickly realize that as an investor, you really aren't in control. And, and um, you know, so I, I take those two variables and I think they're really at the center of most of my investment decisions. And, and then you start to layer around that um, what I would describe as the biology. And we're more, it, maybe we practice the business differently, but I find that we're more trying to identify um, attributes that are, that are radically differentiated. And, and if you're like Darwin and the Galapagos, you're looking for, you know, the, 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 and it wouldn't be hard to come up with, you know, the origin of species if you went to the Galapagos. And that's sort of like what it, what it feels like to be in our ecosystem where you see these great variations. And then there's, there's this question of fitness, you know, and I, we had uh, Spencer and I were together at a uh, cockroach board meeting today. And, and there's this term product market fit, which, I mean, if I hear that again, that's but big data, whatever big data went to it or synergy. Um, I mean, it's such a tautology. You know, it's like, yeah, okay, people want what you built, uh, a product that people want to buy. It, it's so insightful. Uh, you know, and then, and then uh, Andreessen Horowitz now, uh, again, I mindful this is on the record, has talked about founder market fit, even more elevated. So, so instead, instead, we I think I think obsess on just is the biology of the company, the the, the market that they're working in, the problems that they're solving but more importantly, kind of the structure of the company conducive to dramatic and radical growth. Um, and then those combinations of like character, you know, assessment as well as opportunity assessment combine into this sort of once or twice a year, we, we take a leap of faith and, and we say, what could go right? So 
Yeah. And then talk a little bit about um, benchmark. I think it's interesting for people as well to get a sense of. I mean, you, you guys, you know, practice the 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 the. The art, certainly not the science of, of VC, you know, in a different way from precisely yeah. Andreessen Horowitz. I mean, you're pretty much the opposite uh, ends yeah. of the spectrum. So, how do you how do you think about that? Well, I'd, I'd start by saying I think it's great that there's variance in our ecosystem; that it's not just a monoculture. And and Andreessen Horowitz, as an example of a firm, I think has um, invested in things that that they can scale, uh, which I, I think you know, if you look at the list of services, there, there's a there's a good argument that you can scale BD, you can scale PR. You can scale access to CIOs. Um, our firm actually has a very different structural kind of uh, makeup, and I use this analogy. It's not totally fair to them, but like a jazz band versus a marching band, um, it's not fair. I, I don't. I'm not sensational to say it that marching way. Marching bands can be cool. Yeah, I mean, maybe we'll just say like you know the Berlin Philharmonic. Make it a little more uh, a little more uh, uh, aspirational. Um, it, it, so, so the, the nature of benchmark started with the founders who took this premise that uh, you needed to provide a uniformly great interface to entrepreneurs. So the idea is that each of us are equal partners. We pay each other exactly the same. There's no associates. There's no principals. And I grew up at Excel, where I was trained there, and I was a I was an associate, or they probably had an even lower title for me when I started, um, or at least I deserved one. And, and the premise of Benchmark was that the great entrepreneurs don't want to talk to that junior associate. They want to, they want to talk to the decision-making senior partner. Um, and, then, and then the sort of corollary to that is that by working in a way that's, that's shoulder to shoulder, the, the surface area we have as, as partners to consigliaries, therapists to our founders, benefits from high surface area of interactions. So, so what that means specifically is when you're trying to make a decision of do you hire this VP of engineering or that VP of engineering, it's really essential that you understand the, the substance of the company. Like what's the nature of the engineering team? What's the, what's the proclivity of the founder to micromanage? And, and so all these things I think you know, lend themselves to an individual having a very deep relationship. So that's how the firm's been built. And it has this, this wonderful property as I like to think about is we don't scale at all, um, but, but our investments do. And um, the partners all have conversations about Uber and Snapchat and WeWork, and, and like we, we we feel vested in their success. And, and and you know I can you know point to lots of examples where we end up recruiting people for our partners' companies because there's not a um, uh, uh, well if you you do better this investment round I'm, I'll get less economics next next fund which which happens in a hierarchical firm. And I think the net of it is that, that the premise we have is you can practice the business as a craft and as artisans, um, but you have to get comfortable with the fact that, that you're you know, kind of only as good as the hours that you're applying every day. And I think other firms have the ability, to, and I think have the, the management capacity to try and build a, fa a, a, a in instrument that scales. And ultimately, I think entrepreneurs end up preferring one to the other. And we don't find ourselves, I don't find myself competing with, with that model, because um, I, you know, we're just so different. It's like, do you want to go to a jazz band tonight, or do you want to see, you know, the Philharmonic? Okay, very good. All right. So, um, you already... Um talked about big data, and I'm getting the sense that you love that term, but uh, you, you do have uh, a number of companies uh, that uh, do fall in the in that category, so from yeah. Hortonworks, uh, New Relic, um, and through your uh, partners as well, so it's Confluent, uh, Domo, like all those guys, so you, yes. you guys are, and, yes. and Elasticsearch, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so, uh, so even though you, you, you may not like the term, uh, is, that, is that an actual... Um, focus of yours, or is that just a different flavor of enterprise um, infrastructure? Yeah, you know, it's, it's 
uh, I'll come back to Excel, not that people care, but Excel and benchmark. Excel, I was taught that, that, okay, we need to have a prepared mind. You do extraordinary work, much better than anyone I, when I was at Excel than we did. Uh, and really thinking about a segment, a category, and its coherence, and, and that would lead you to be more, um, Louis Pasteur said, this is what I was taught, chance prefers the prepared mind, or luck prefers the prepared mind. So I came to benchmark in, um, I didn't know that I agreed with that. Uh, and my partner said, that, like, don't you do that shit here. <laughs> Throw the crystal ball out. You can't predict anything. What you could do is you could recognize when lightning strikes. And if you get good at that, you'll get behind some momentum. But more importantly, you should, you should be recognizing character types that you want to work with. A little bit about the, the nature of the people. So, so I actually got into elastic surge through um, a collision of accidents, uh, investing in spring source. I was, I was an early investor in, in open source and JBoss, which led to spring source. Which, so then the, the problems of what we now call big data were attracting a next generation of entrepreneurs. And one of the great things about, about our world is, as investors is that um, we had to actually follow, in, in many ways, follow the instincts of the best people of their generation. Because they're chasing the things that have the highest rate of change, that are at the, the, at the intersection of a collision of different sectors and, and segments. And um, that, that, that led to a clustering of investments, which in hindsight looked like they were deeply strategic around our big data thesis, which, <laughs> which we've... Uh, so, so, so is that right? So, you, um, so a, you know, a cockroach, for example, um, Spencer who spoke at the event uh, yeah. you know, a few months ago. So, so it's literally you, you don't have a thesis around you know, the best of both worlds in SQL and NoSQL converging. It's just happened that Spencer walks oh, into I, the room and he's yeah. incredible, so you invest in him? You know... It's, he's in the room, so I have to pretend like I had a very deep thesis. Um, uh, indeed, we've been looking for a SQL interface on top of a um, distributed transactional key value store. And, and, then, and then he came in and I saw it all in instant. No, I mean, come on. <laughs> so here's what I sensed. Is it Spencer had worked on some of the most important, I think, foundational work of, of the internet and broadly computing at Google. And what Spanner and F1 did was, you have to be an idiot not to see it. I mean, it, it's, it's the scale, and you wrote about this, I think, in your extraordinary blog post, and, and that the work is being done at Facebook, to a degree, Twitter. Um, and I had, a, I had a strong intuition, I think we had a, collectively as an industry of an intuition, that those technologies were not going to be trapped inside of the big internet companies. So which, but what you needed was not a Google dweebish engineer like what you see in, in some things like, uh, well, I'm not going to pick on Kubernetes, um, but, but uh, what you needed is, is, a, is a leader, an entrepreneur, and, and, and Spencer had left the comfort of Google to pursue his vision and his passion with a startup, and much like, you know, Travis at Uber or, or Evan at Snapchat, the first one doesn't always work, and it's like, I love backing company two and three, and, some, and number one, you get lucky sometimes, but uh, I really love, uh, yeah, num number, number two, if the first one was you know, done with integrity. Um, anyway, so you combine the character of Spencer, the, the experience base that he had, um, and, and I would say this, and, and this is, you know, sort of one of the fun things about, about such a great entrepreneur, Spencer, is, and I, this sounds like an advertisement, but he, he could describe the, the database in a way that if you're a developer in three to five years, why wouldn't you start with that? Like, otherwise you're stuck solving all these problems that a developer shouldn't be on their plate. Um, so we then, in our, in our business, you know, we fall in love easily, so we have to check our, uh, sometimes check our, um, 
judgment. And, and um, I had him talk to Jeff Rothschild, who was the CTO at Facebook, and Jeff had helped me turn down pretty much every bit database company ever existed, and he said, this is the one. And, and you know, if we were at Facebook, we could do it all over again, this is the product we wish we could use. And then, so, so, so it starts to cluster in towards uh, a thesis. And, and um, a, lot, a lot of the, the uh, questions around um, big data, generally speaking, get to adopt adoption, like how do you get off the ground, how do you get uptake, and, and um, you know, what's different in the case of Cockroach versus, say, Elasticsearch is that Elasticsearch, like lightning had struck, and it had been around for nine months. Shai, who, who is an extraordinary leader, you know, technology, and his partner, Stephen, is the CEO, um, like, you, you made three phone calls to random phone calls. Like, I, I'm called Yelp, because they came in and said, look, it's everywhere. I'm like, I've never heard of it, and I'll test that. So I, I called Yelp, Quora, and Zillow, and the best was Adam D'Angelo. Quora said, don't mention we're using this. This is competitive advantage. I'm like, it's open source. <laughs> and so he's like, well, you know, but we benchmarked it. It's the, the single best. Anyway, so, so, so um, and in some, some cases you just, you, you can back momentum, but I think now we're pushing past pure momentum and we're looking for, for people who are actually trying to really innovate and create new technology, so. So, so speaking of uh, open source, so a, a lot of the investments that um, you made in, in the enterprise, Hortonworks, Elastic, Docker, uh, Cockroach, um, so those are open source businesses. What, what are your, um, what, what do you find open source companies attractive from an investment standpoint? So I started the venture business in 99, and my partner Bill, if he was here, would say, yeah, just like right now, you know, nuclear winter, and, and money disappears, and, you know, all of a sudden, you assume a bunch of things in the background that just shifted an instant. And, and so by 01, uh, two-thirds of the companies that, that we were involved with were getting shut down. And, and you left behind this residual of, wow, we got way out ahead of ourselves in, in putting dollars into sales and marketing and not into engineered product. And, and it was a wasteland, literally a wasteland of oversold product, you know, companies that, that we forget now, um, God, the lists are so long, of, of, uh, of the bullshit artists. So, I, you know, I had this belief that um, the internet collapses time and space between an author and, and its consumer, and, and or their consumer. And the software distribution model, when we make an investment, it's still somewhat the case that if we put a, for every dollar we put in, something like 60% of that goes into selling the technology. And that nobody sold anybody Facebook. Nobody sold me Google. Nobody sold me Twitter, right? There was a, a, a dynamic of adoption of habit formation and that created, an, uh, and then it ultimately created a virality in the usage of the product, which I think you can actually apply to open source. So, so uh, in the, in the very beginning, it came out of the ashes of having overbuilt the industry sales and marketing engine to say, the authors have to be more in control. And I remember meeting Mark Zuckerberg, or Mark, Mark, Zuckerberg, Mark Fleury in, uh, in 2003, for my first open source investment. And um, I can't, he, he presented in a way that was so over the top, um, used language, I can't say any of this stuff publicly, but you know, um, Mark, Mark is a force of nature. So I, I, he left the meeting. Meaning, a JBoss was a J2E application server. People don't even remember these technologies, but the uh, and they had um, you know huge share with developers because they removed all the costs from hey, I want to write a Java application to I download this thing and go. Whereas BEA was charging twenty five hundred dollars for a workstation, and they had a big you know Armani suit would come take you to a steak dinner and sell you this. So um, anyway, so 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 I called uh, half a dozen people, and I'll never like vividly forget this weekend. I didn't sleep. Most of the people I talked to, four of the six people said, categorically radioactive, you'll never make money, you're going to get fired, 
you know, it's like Napster. Like people look at you and say, it's just stupid. You're trying to like licenses, man. You need IP. You need to protect it. What do you think? And I'm like, but there's this phenomenon. There's this energy. That check the fearsome box. Exactly. And geez, he, um, he had said to a, um, in a, in a public forum to a customer who was trying to, the business model of open source back then was support. The customer was trying to get support. Um, he had said in a public forum, um, the, act, the three letters were SMD. I'm not going to tell you guys what that means. You can probably figure that out. Uh, and, and, and BEA had gotten a hold of this, and they were basically saying, hey, here's what you need to know about JBoss. These, this guy's radioactive. So I couldn't sleep. And I, I finally, you know, I committed, but I thought for sure I was going to get fired. And, um, and I did pretty much all along the way with JBoss. But um, and, and so, so I'm, not, I'm giving you sort of the history of it, how we got there. So, so we basically built a business model around selling support contracts. Um, you know, there's, there's two fundamental variances in open source. There's the packaging model, which we're in at Hortonworks, because there isn't one owner of Hadoop. It's, it's a collective, much like Linux. And then there's the other model, which is open core. Open core is, is a more naturally monetizable model. It doesn't tend to have as much scale because, you know, Linux has great scale. Hadoop has great scale. So, so you have to pick um, open core um, projects that have two attributes that I would look for. One is production value. So, so doing open core on a developer tool is not going to get you very far. Um, and you see this with Zend and others. I mean, not to pick on companies, but um, and then and then the second thing is a. Um, uh, big enough market, meaning you can get to a platform-like status. And I, I, we believe we have that on Elasticsearch, where you look at the, the you know sheer scope of the product versus it being a niche little thing. And again, I don't want to pick on companies, but there's some there's some production value open source companies that are nichey, and that's really hard because you can't you know the area you're integrating under the curve to monetize is uh, is limited by the adoption. So we'd rather have mass adoption and then you know give as much away as you can in the open core model. Um, and, and I think, you know, I'd take Elasticsearch as such a great case study if you're building an open source company for, go as far as you possibly can without thinking about monetization. Because what, what ultimately, if you're open core, um, which gets this other issue of Amazon, which we should talk about, um, you, you have the ability to layer value in a way that I think is very symbiotic with what the underlying usage is. Um, and the flip side is if you try and monetize and constrain adoption, you're just gonna open the door for another company to come in and, and, and compete with you, so. Yeah. So to, to the um, to the monetization part, so uh, there was this uh, blog post that Peter Levine from Anderson Horowitz did um, I think last year or a couple of years ago, um, and he's actually an, an entrepreneur that you backed while, yeah. while you were at Excel, right? Yeah. Um, and, and now GP at um, at Anderson Horowitz, and uh, I think the the, the post <laughs> the, the title of the post was that while there will never be another Red Hat, and basically making the point that yeah. Red Hat was one off, you know, being able to become a, a successful public company was a was a pure support model, and he was advocating, you know, a hosted model, that type of thing. So, and we can talk about what that means. But yeah. what are your thoughts on on business models and what makes sense when? Yeah, you know, the thing that that. So first of all, I, I I've learned a long time ago I can't be that categorical. Um, we don't redline or block out areas and say that won't ever work because so much of what we end up doing is the exception. So as we become more rule driven in investing we stop investing. And, and so I'd start by saying I would never make a categorical statement like that. I think what's happening in the Hadoop ecosystem is you have two companies, Cloudera, at least two, um, you could argue MapR and Hortonworks that are packagers that have the Red Hat business model that like Red Hat, by the way, Red Hat is not just a packager now. They, they, they're selling a lot of extensions. The subscription carries a ton of proprietary code. They, they just have something upstream of that that unlocks the distribution model. So, so the, the, the answer to the question I think starts with 
what's the sequencing in your business? And, and so I think if you start by saying you need mass adoption, if you pursue if you, a hosted model, when in fact people will say, well, we want the freedom to be able to deploy on premise, we're not sure, like Docker is an example, like if Docker was hosted only, that would be a huge mistake. We'd occlude so much of our market. So, you know, the, the step one in any open source success story is ubiquity. And, and okay, that's easy, right? Easy to say, but actually achieving that is, 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 is a lot harder. Um, once you've achieved that, you have to protect it and nurture it. So um, the, the, the monetization, and I could say that like, look, New Relic, we talked about open sourcing the New Relic agent. We're like, well, what, what advantage does that give us? Like we have a simplified hosted offering. People want an API call from systems management management, they don't want to have to, you know, deploy and, and a bunch of shit you get from open source doesn't, doesn't apply there. Maybe for the plugins, maybe we get developers to, um, but, but if, if you say for them, ubiquity was, you know, one button to systems management, ubiquity for a lot of software is just this, this, like I can get going in five minutes, the code's there. Um, the, the issue, the single biggest issue facing open source business models is not, um, I, I don't think hosted versus packaged like Red Hat. It's how do you deal with Amazon? And, and none of us, by the way, have an appreciation for how big a threat that is. And I think it's a near certainty Amazon's going to do $100 billion in revenue in AWS. They're operating at 20% operating margins, which is good to a degree, because if they were 2% operating margins, I'd be more worried. Um, but you have, you have a company that's going to, uh, it's on its path to be, and it is, about a 90% market share player. And what stops that? So you look at in any open source project, if it's not licensed the right way, uh, this, is an, this is an interesting debate. The, the, the Mongo strategy is interesting, but you know, the pro, here's the problem: is that top of funnel. I'm a developer. Where am I starting? And I get some Docker containers and I go to Amazon. And Amazon has to be just good enough. Like they don't have to be the best. They just have to say, "Hey, we checked that box. It's good enough." So, so if you get back to the question of ubiquity, ubiquity is going to require you to wrestle with the fact that that there's this thing, Amazon, that has a credit card for your customer. And, and a full profile of all the stuff they're using. And they can just be good enough. And I, I think that will, it end up, it may be that the, the Red Hat packaging model is, is more defensible because you can have an on-premise, because uh, there's still CIOs that feel like they need to build their own stuff on-premise, so. And, and maybe for context, just make sure that it's, it's clear what, what um, we're talking about. So the, the, the Amazon threat is Amazon taking an open source project and making it their own and basically offering it without the support from the vendor. And I guess Elasticsearch is, well, Elastic is, falls in that category of yeah, I'm not, such a great business that we're going to offer it ourselves. Regrettable. I wish it was just open source, but why, why stop there? I mean, like they can make their own version of anything. And, and, and it's the computer. It, the, any of you don't, like, just look at their roadmap and the velocity against that roadmap. We've not seen anything like this. And, and, and I mean, I, you know, it's, it's just, now, Azure is great. You know, I, I think they, they have the benefit of starting later. So Azure has, uh, gets back to, to where I think there are opportunities. They, um, they, have, they have GPUs from NVIDIA that are only two years old. So it turns out they have meaningfully better performance for uh, real-time data processing, uh, like meaningfully better than Amazon. Now, Amazon eventually will get there because they'll have they'll look at the latest generation of NVIDIA chips. But um, I just wish it was more of a, I think, of course, Microsoft is the second horse in that race, but it feels like it's an 80-20, 90-10 as opposed to like a 60-40. If you, if you take out the legacy Microsoft customers, which, which are not where startups typically go and serve, right? So, you know, it's, it's, it's a great fear. And I think it is the, the top of funnel question, which means that you have to be obsessing in an open source company around direct relationship with developers. Give them lots of reasons to want to, to have like a, a, a binding relationship with you um, to protect your business model long term.
Great. Okay, so we established that um, you're uh, more opportunistic and 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 sort of entrepreneur driven than um, thesis driven, but but really in that entire world, I mean you, that yeah. you do spend a lot of time in. On there, like areas that sort of at least conceptually you find more interesting. I don't know this whole thing around you know machine learning and yeah. AI and the application layer of all this infrastructure. Is that is that interesting? Or you, you invested in City Mapper as well, I believe, which is a super interesting company, which is a, a data application type companies? Or yeah, so I think we've seen that there's a chance to create, you know, differentially radically better product experiences with data at scale combined with machine learning. And I, you know, I love Stitch Fix, which is just an example of that's an application in many ways of, of, of machine learning predictive analytics on top of, uh, on top of large data sets. The, the thing we, we struggle with is um, and I think you, you've, you've covered this in the past, but it's worth just putting a spotlight on it. You have to get the data. So in an application company, it turns out I think that the at-scale providers, companies like New Relic or people are already moving terabytes of data or Uber, they can apply the technologies for machine learning. Um, and and unfortunately, this is, the, this is the issue I think we sort of face as investors. Um, they can actually hire the best people. They can afford to pay the most. It's worth most to them because they have the best, you know, the highest marginal return on that, that, that you know, data scientist. And so you see this, this sort of imbalance of power uh, and, and machine learning is the game of kings. You know, it's not deep learning or deep mind is part of Google. Like they, as an independent company, like they could Google can pay them more. So they, that's where they end up. So the, the application issue is how do you create a source of data, a scalable source of data that allows you to then, because the, the, like the algorithms for machine learning are actually not new. And, and you know, uh, there's some stuff like, like deep, um, deep learning for J. There's, there's like their open source libraries that are, have merged. But, but the intersection of the data with those, those algorithms is where you create magic. And, um, and so I think we start, I've, certainly as an investor, and I don't, of course, I don't have any theses when I invest, but the, uh, um, my, my obsession is, okay, how can you create something that's going to give you a, a increasing returns to scale in any investment? So it gets easier. Than We've always talked about the cloud and SaaS as having this ability to aggregate an industry data and then layer on top of that these sort of cross data set insights. And um, unfortunately, as a startup, and you come in like day one, that's a scale advantage. So like, how, do you, how do you get from here to there? And it gets back to saying, okay, well, you have to find a way to solve some problem that starts to inhale the log files or solve a problem. And so I think you've seen this with, with the analytics companies and, 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 and like they're not, they want to earn the right to have this predictive analytics. Um, the other strategy would be uh, to take an open source uh, approach, which I think some people are investing in an AI. Um, and I'm really intrigued by all this stuff because you say, okay, well, it's not, not fair that Google and Facebook get to monopolize the market on machine learning. So let's, let's put the science, the PhD work from the great universities into a collective and then allow companies to package and, and, and apply that in their different um, use cases. So it could be a bank, it could be a, you know, a startup company. And, um, I still, I still think you end up coming back from an investment standpoint, saying, "Okay, where can you create a pool of data that?" Um, it's funny because Daryl um, Morey, who's the general manager of the Houston Rockets, uh, and but NBA is huge user of quote big data, right? So um, we had this discussion. I said, "So where's the advantage now? Is it in the data or is it in the analytics?" And he said, "Man, it's not in the analytics. We all hire the same." people of the same models, like that's commodity. It's the data. 
And like the NBA has, has used to be for like the like first few years where the strategy really worked. It's the whole problem of like you're in a stadium and someone stands up in front of you and then everyone stands up. And it's like, okay, I'm not, you know, for, for that brief moment where you're the only one standing up, you see everything. So he's like, yeah, like five years ago, we, we like, we were collecting this data. Nobody else was collecting it. Now the fucking NBA makes us put, like it's all into this, this, this big pool. So they're looking for new data, like, you know, uh, the heart rate data, things that are like counterintuitive. So um, we sort of lose sight of the fact that the, the uh, advantages of scale um, aren't the domain of a startup. And which, which, by the way, just getting back to this, uh, were you guys investors in the, uh, the driverless car company? Um, uh, was it called? Uh, the one that just got acquired? Just got acquired. Cruise. Yeah. Yes. And that is really counterintuitive to us, which is, Again, why at some point in the venture business you have to, about twenty years in you got to retire. Uh, so, so like, how could they, how could a startup win there? You know, come on, man, like, that should be Google with all their data, or like maybe Tesla because they have you know you know whatever two hundred thousand cars you know pumping data into their machine learning. Um, but but it is it is a fundamental um, question of like if you have a path to pooling information in a unique and proprietary way, you can then have the ability to have rocket fuel in your business model if you can add machine learning on top of that. Look, we see it at Twitter, we see it at Facebook and and Uber and. And um, the day one, you got the sort of cold start problem. Great. Um, last question from me, because then I want to uh, um, some question from, from you guys and taking it back up um, a level. Um, thoughts on the current environment? You mentioned nuclear winter. How bad is it? How long is it going to last? Yeah. How should entrepreneurs think about it? Yeah. So, so my partner, Bill, has oops, like a year and a half. So he's a prophet. And I like to point out there's only one kind of profit. <laughs> and there's profit and doom. And the guy in the rain with a pamphlet and, you know, and so I, Bill and I, you know, what he was focused on, which I completely agree with, is we have a burn rate bubble, meaning companies have lost, they've numbed themselves to the fact that you have to eventually replace the capital that you're, that you're burning with operating income. And so we, we, there's an extraordinary article I recommend everyone read um, called The Agony and the Ecstasy. If you just Google that, you'll find it. It's a, it's a JP Morgan put it out. Um, and what they look at is failure rates of companies through cycles. And what you find is that across, these are public companies, but it's actually relevant for startups. You know, in any given year, about 15% of the companies in the IT world have a catastrophic loss of value, which is 70% of your value evaporates, and it never comes back. So for the last five years, that's been 5%. And, and the, the propagation of easy money has allowed for companies to effectively put money in, and burn rate in replace of underlying structural economics. So you prop up growth. And, and we all sat in board meetings. I'm sure you did as well. Look, man, like your multiple, uh, your enterprise value multiples a function of your growth rate. And there was this like point, this is why statistics are, are dangerous. It was a 0.8% or 0.80 R squared of, you know, revenue growth to revenue multiple. So doesn't matter, like spend, 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 just got to grow. Look at Workday. We got to be like that. Like we got, we got that multiple. I want that multiple. We got to grow because they're losing a ton of money. So literally like three months ago, that, that correlation vanished. And there's a new correlation, which is free cash flow plus growth, which takes into account how much cash your, your growth costs. So it's free cash flow plus growth um, e equals your, your enterprise multiple. So if you're inhaling cash, box.com shows up and like all of a sudden the line now is a 0.63 R squared, which again is bullshit because there'll be some new metric that comes up. But, but, but so, so what's happened is the burn rate bubble I think has woken people up to the fact that capital all of a sudden may not be so easy to get 
Um, but unlike the last bubble where it was the retail investor that was setting the marginal price, this was not a retail investor bubble. This was an institutional invest investor bubble. So there's a long tail. And that long tail takes the form of, well, <laughs> I really don't want to write this down. And, you know, if I put a little bit more money in, nobody will know what's happened here. And I think it's a Madoffian like problem, you know, right? Because there, there's this sort of sense of people who put money in, who, and everyone's all this press around, oh, Fidelity marked it down 8%. What are the fucking public markets? Like, they're down 40%. Like, why aren't they, all these things down? They're, they're less liquid. They're, the, the analogy that, that, that uh, I, you know, these, these are all, you know, cliche now, but we've been paying the minor league payers, players um, a lot more than we've been paying the major league players. That doesn't make any sense. And so, so this long tail of sort of resetting evaluations, is not a bubble in the sense of like, oh, I mean, these companies are overvalued. That's not the issue. It's that like the companies aren't going to be able to raise money. And when that happens, the first step of that, by the way, is you get terms. You can raise money, but, and I think uh, there's a company here in the local business um, that might compete with Yelp that had, had a financing recently that was talked about that, that had some terms. And, and they get pretty cranky, you know, these terms that end up sitting on top of the common. And so the employees are being hired, like they don't know that their common stock may not be worth anything because um, they're getting layered and layered and layered. So, so to answer this sort of, this is a long-winded answer, this is not like 99 to 2001 where it went like that. I think it's much more of a, of a long tail and we're structural optimists, even though you can point out to the negatives, that the overwhelming positives of a few of the companies in this, in this uh, unicorn ecosystem will overwhelm the losses. But what's tragic is you have a lot of companies who otherwise could have had a viable business, but they didn't actually think about burn rate. And when they have to think about it, they've, they've built in so much uh, fat that, that they, they may not be able to recover without destroying a cap table. So um, that, you know, I think less of an issue in New York than maybe it was in Silicon Valley. Certain sectors got hit more than others, um, but it, it's less of a headline thing. It's more of a, you know, I, I talked to some hedge funds who, uh, there's what, 150 unicorns? And uh, so I've talked to some hedge funds and they're, they're way short Silicon Valley Bank and First Republic Bank. And because they're like, how do, you, how, do you, how do you short the unicorns? Like, because like for sure, like in, in theory that I want them to say, what I think is very smart. It's like, like yeah, let's say a hundred of them aren't going to be worth anything because the equity value will be wiped out. Um, how, do, how, do you get a, how do you put a trade on that? And yeah, so anyway, um, yeah, I, I, we're optimists. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I just say this in the public market and I can't, and I'm, I'm on five public boards. Um, I think we have had, you know, I think quite rational, uh, positive, negative feedback loops that have really helped those companies. And so we've been a huge proponent of going public. And one of the things that scares the shit out of me is people saying, oh my God, like those public companies, they just lost half their value. Thank God we're private. No, because when that, the, the, you know, when you, when you need to raise that next round and it's not available, then there'll be this great rift between the public and the private. And, and, and then corporate M&A is going to start. It hasn't started yet because there's still a reality distortion. And the corporate M&A is not going to be fun because the corporate and, and, and corporate dev people at places, you know, big companies have said, those nose-picking startups think they're worth like 5x our multiple? Like, wait till they get their day. And, 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 and then that's why they, you know, they're just sort of waiting. And uh, anyway, uh, but I, we're, I'm so optimistic. I think to look forward to talk about this. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. Uh, questions? Do we have a microphone? This one over there. And, and then we'll, Jack, I know you had some questions. Hi, I'm just wondering, um, have you ever, have you given any thought to open source technology like blockchain and particularly with how 
interplay of blockchain and the greater internet of things will provide access to new sources of data? Yeah, you know, we, we have. I'm not an expert. What I'll say is that we're, um, like most of our peers, exposed to Bitcoin. We had this discussion at our Monday partner meeting, which is, what's the gestation period for a technology? Because oftentimes, you know, in the hype cycle, you get overexcited, and then you go through a trough, and then it comes out the other side. Um, and we're having this conversation, like, like, sorry, this is a totally random sequence to your question, but, like, how long had the phone had the camera on it? before you got Instagram, five, six years. I, mean, I, I had a, I had a um, commitment to invest in Flickr in 2004, and you know, Stuart decided to sell, certain Katarina decided to sell it to, um, to Yahoo, and because you know, how, how can you build a business model around photo sharing? Oh my God, and then they like, you had like, hipstamatic, so, so, so there's this like five-year gestation period, or how long did the phone have to have GPS before you could actually launch a business model like Uber? So, so the question of the blockchain for us is, um, is it in a gestation phase where Bitcoin, in fact, is the best application of the blockchain? I know, oh no, what about like, you know, escrow, and I'm like, maybe, but what's got the most use right now? What has the strongest form network effect around it? It's Bitcoin. So, you know, I think our, our perspective is that there's a decent chance, I mean, there's all sorts of risks that, that we're in a, you know, kind of first 25% of gestation that, that probably gets unlocked through less blockchain writ large for all these different things like identity, this is my instinct, and more removement of friction for Bitcoin to do payments. And, and if that happens, oh my God. And we can all blame ourselves for not having lots more Bitcoin in our, you know. As Oensis, who's one of the CEOs, is like, it's, it's irresponsible to not have 1% of your net worth in Bitcoin. And, and I said, you know, I said, that, that is the most viral marketing technique I've ever heard. And, and, so you said, oh, look, if it works, your grandkids you know, don't have to work. But if, but if it doesn't, who cared? You know, you're gonna waste 1% on a car. So. Anyway, that, that's my view on blockchain. Hi, I had a whole bunch of questions, but I'll try to distill it down to just one. Uh, you were just talking a little bit about the burn rate and all of that. Um, I was just wondering, do you talk to your startups and their entrepreneurs a little bit differently now because of the that overhang of the unicorns? Like, for example, today when you're talking to yeah. Cockroach, who I know a little bit about, uh, were you telling them, spend, spend, spend more money, you know, grow a lot faster, or are you telling them spend less money or do more engineering? You know, how is that conversation different, or is it any different at all than you would have had, say, two or three years ago? Yeah, it is different. I like to think that we're not so, um, you know, fickle, right? Because strategy should be resilient to market phases. And, and the biggest issue, the burn rate, problem has created for our companies is that you've got a second company or a third company in the market that has an open checkbook. Hortonworks and Cloudera. You know, I, I, Uber and Didi. And, and so the, we've been hoping for some degree of rationality because I actually think the stronger companies are going to get stronger when capital is scarce. Um, the, the problem you run into is like if your competitor is hiring and building distribution at that rate, like what do you do? 
and, and it's like a complete, you know, and, and this is the uber thermonuclear global, you know, like you've got all these companies that, and it's, it's insane. Like, you, you know, it's very good to be a consumer, um, you know, you look, especially in San Francisco. And uh, I think it was Nick Bilton who said, we've got this, the, the, the mom culture. So, yeah, like, you know, mom, I need some drugs. Mom, I need some food. Mom, I need to get my car washed. And like, that's all like, because this is now remote control for, your mom wouldn't wash your car, but the, uh, you get the point. Um, uh, and so, so what's, what's most acute is when you have a, um, a deeply competitive market where both players have, have unlimited access to capital. You have, you have sectors where people are, quote, pot committed, where as much money as it takes, because if we eventually drain them of their supplies, we'll win. Um, cockroach is not in that market. So, so there it's more a question of, um, you know, how much should we assume how much cap, how easy will it be to access capital downstream is a question we're having. And my advice six months ago is, and when we first invested dispenser, is like capital won't be that hard to get for the next round. And I think that more or less proved to be true. He had a, he had a pick of great investors who all wanted to pay a fair price. Um, if we go out today, I think capital, you should assume, is a little harder to get, maybe a lot harder to get if you're in your series C and D and your growth rates have like dipped down below a certain percent. There, there's a, there was a great moment in a, in a Yelp board meeting with Max Levchin, Jeremy and I, and, and, and Jamie Levine, who's based here. And uh, this is, uh, uh, unfortunately, this is all public and I'll regret saying this. So this is for Slide. And Max said, the problem with Yelp and raising money is like there's too much data. Slide, we have like, we have 150 million people that are using it. Let's just assume we can monetize a dollar, you know, per month per user. How much revenue do you have now? It's like, none. You know, because then, like, as soon as it becomes real, then it gets bounded by gravity. <laughs> so, <laughs> there's a certain degree to which it's kind of fun to, like, Foursquare, oh, and the business model's right around the corner. Uh, oh, my God, that's the business model? <laughs> so, no offense to them, but the, uh, yeah, it, it uh, uh, we love them. I actually, like, they, they have a lot of opportunity, but the, uh, so, so the, the question of, like, will the market tolerate speculation, I think the answer is, like, you, we're going into a risk-averse cycle, and we were in a risk-seeking cycle. Net-net, that's really good for the strong companies because, you know, I, I, God, I remember being an investor in 03 and 04, and you'd see these great engineers come free, and then, like, who's hiring? VMware and Google. And so, you could skim the cream, and that, now it's like, you know, Brett Taylor and people like, they, she's extraordinary entrepreneurs. Like, they just, you know, they were lucky to get a job. And, and I, so I don't think we're going to actually face that kind of a, a correction. But, but in general, if like capital becomes more scarce, having it is a, is a weapon. And then you want to preserve it if you, which is the other message I've been delivering, which is save it for today. Because like, if, if it's a lot more expensive to raise money in this time next year, having it will allow you to hire that marginally exceptional engineer who, you know, can't, you know, the companies they were at can't afford them anymore. So, and that's how the, the tenors change. All right, one last question. Hey, Peter. Um, sorry, I have two small questions that I'm putting into one. Um, you've made a comment that how Amazon is the biggest problem facing open source. Now, why wouldn't AGPL be the answer? And the second question is about the fundraising environment. Um, you know, you talked about how in 99 there was all these bullshit artists that kind of came out of the woodwork. Why... I mean, it, it, I'm curious to your opinion. I mean, isn't it the fact today that there's just the return of the same bullshit artists who are pitching mediocre products to problems that don't necessarily exist? So I don't fully understand the second question. The, the, it's, it's, say, say it again. The, isn't it just reminiscent of, you know, 99, 2000 with the same bullshit artists? That no, you I think it's different. Let me, let me come to the first question. Um, 
So the, 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 the issue I've always have with license, I've been in so many board meetings where the licensing conversations come up and my eyes glaze over and I'm definitely not smart enough to know how you can screw your customer through a license. Um, I, I remember at MySQL, like they used to say, well, we have a better license model than JBoss. And because we had the LGPL, they had the GPL. And, but I was like, well, why is that better? Because like, you have to go, so, so my, um, I was benchmark was the lead investor in MySQL. I was at, J, at Excel before I came over. And so when I came over and I had talked to Kevin about it, it's like GPL actually was not, not, not that good because what happened is you'd actually have to go into your customer and accuse them of violating the license. And as a customer, like, oh shit, we shouldn't have been using it. As opposed to, oh, we'll give you some money, no problem. So um, I think the issue with it not being a license model problem is top of funnel. Specifically, you know, if Amazon's going to build, let's say they have the Elastic product. I don't, I don't want to take Elastic as an example. Let's just say that they, they, they have an alternative in the open source world. They realize they can't, and Zen is a great example of this, so the hypervisor. Um, we, you know, we can't get it in a way that we want because the license precludes us. So we're just going to, we have enough scale, like we're the internet. We'll, we'll hire the people and we'll do it ourselves. So, so, so unless there's something proprietary in the open source, which by definition it's sort of already out there and open, um, I think it's very difficult for a license to protect you from Amazon coming up with good enough in a competing service. I think you're seeing that in CDNs, you're seeing it in, in and so that, that doesn't mean you can't use the license as a, or copyright in the case of Elasticsearch, but it doesn't let you off the hook. It doesn't let you off the hook from providing a radically better experience for the developer or for the operator who, for, for whomever. Um, and unfortunately, because Amazon already has the customer, they have their credit card, they have the, like, they don't have to be nearly as good as you to be able to, to monetize that. Relative to the bullshit artist thing, I don't, I, I, yeah, I mean, like, someone, one of my partners said that, that promoters are like whales that breach every seven to ten years when the cycle gets conducive. And, and do you remember Clinkle? Like, that was a sign for us that the whales were breaching. Like, they were coming up the promotional air, and, and, and it was, they got funded. Clinkle got, you know, it's an extraordinary story. Clinkle today, that doesn't happen. Um, so I think the whales are starting to submerge again. And, but that's fine. You know, some of them, it's hard to sec, sep, separate out the, you know, promotional from authentic. And, you know, it's, it's a, to someone's eyes, a promoter is authentic and others not. So it's hard for us to say categorically, but I think we're, we're moving into a cycle where it's going to be refreshingly, um, uh, uh, you, you know, uh, I don't want to say the promoters are gone, it's sort of the nature of industry, but it'll be a lot, there'll be a lot less of that kind of BS, and I think, I think it'll make the whole ecosystem healthier. All right, on that positive note, thank you so much. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. Yeah. Pleasure.